Hello and welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast. I am Giles Alderson, director of the Dare feature film and World of Darkness feature documentary. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking, from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up, in our very, very humble opinion. So joining me today is a very special guest. He's a screenwriter, a graphic novelist, an author, a conservationist. He wrote Judge Dredd, Freddy vs. Jason, Forever Man for Paramount. He worked on many TV shows for Sci-Fi, Netflix, ITV and Amazon. He wrote and exec produced Legendary, starring Scott Adkins and Dolph Lundgren. His latest films, Crowhurst, directed by Simon Rumley and Supervise, starring Tom Berenger and Bo Bridges, directed by Steve Barron, will be out next year. Welcome to the show, Andy Briggs. Hi Giles, nice to be here. Well, thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. <laughs> we'll uh, see. We'll, we will see. We will see. Today we're talking about screenwriting, how it works, how you get shit made, how you move forward from just sitting in your room writing a script to actually making you know, a blockbuster film. We're at the Screenwriters Festival, the London Screenwriters Festival. Um, both me and you are doing talks here. We are indeed. We are indeed. Yours is coming up. Mine's tomorrow, so I've got a bit more time to prepare. Um, a Screenwriters Festival is amazing. It's just yeah. so cool. So many cool people talking about screenwriting and how they get made. It's a, it's a great ambience here. It's mm. a good place to come and just chill out and meet like minds. Yes. And panic together. I lo- panic together yeah there's a lot of that yeah. there's a lot of that so let's let's start off from the beginning how did you start in this business as a, a screenwriter as a producer what, what was your beginning why become a screenwriter why become a screenwriter um i was a teacher for a number of years and i was awful at that so i thought hey how hard can it be um i no, i always wanted to write i always wanted to tell stories in some form Mm. Uh, whether it's going to be a book or a comic or a film, I didn't know at the time. I was lucky enough that my talented older brother, Peter, when I was still in college, wrote a spec script which sold, and that was Alien versus Predator. And then, of course, that kind of propelled him up the ranks. And being the younger brother, it's exactly what I wanted to do because you know Pete's Pete's aim is to direct. He's going to do some fantastic movies coming up. Great. Uh, so it was kind of a mix of fortune and a mix of never giving up. Always facing the peril and thinking, sod it, I'm just going to move ahead. Were you writing scripts at the time your brother was? Yeah, well, I was I was still in college, so mm. I was still, you know, attempting to do A-levels. What were you doing? Attempting to what go were... to film school. I was doing, well, I started off doing A-level physics mm-hmm. and then decided to do media studies and communications. And because you thought I took, you'd get I a took the grade. video cameras out and we just, we just made shit all over the college, which, yeah. was, which was much more fun and mm. much more uh, useful in the end than A-level physics would ever be for me. Um, <laughs> I'm not Brian Cox, so, yeah, it's, no. it's a life choice. Yeah, the actor um, or the... Uh, either. Yeah. <laughs> Surprisingly, I'm neither of them. Um, and as as brothers, we've always wanted to do the same thing, or more or less the same thing. That's been great. It's been a useful learning curve for us both. Mm. He was never... He didn't dissuade you from doing it because he was doing it. We, we were just two film geeks. Okay. And and he was my older brother. So, of course, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd follow along and go, yeah, that's so cool. But then I actually love the business mm. as well. So it's it wasn't just... Me, you know, thinking, hey, I'll do what my older brother wants to do. Yeah. Um, it, but it's been a passion since I re- even remember being, uh, you know, kind of like three foot high in uh, infant school, putting up a little notice to make a film, even though I, wow. I couldn't afford Super 8 film. I just had an empty camera. <laughs> So, <laughs> Did you actually pretend to film with it? Though? Oh yeah, all the really? time. Yeah, you should see my Lego masterpieces. All the animations. I I, I went through the whole animation process with a still camera. And my figures, and no film in the camera. That's and what, 
wow. <laughs> yeah, insane, right? No one ever questioned you. No one ever said. Well, maybe maybe a few child psychologists, but other than that, no. no. <laughs> it's a great way to start. You never ever get to see it just in your imagination. Only in my imagination. How good it was. And the mess on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> so... You're, you're at college, you're doing A-levels and you're now doing media studies and you go, do you know what? I actually want to make this into a career. How did that happen? Well, this was in the kind of old black and white days when there was very few good what film Life courses. was in black and white. Yeah, the yes. whole life was in black and white. And we had three <laughs> channels and well, it wasn't that long ago. And there were no kind of good film courses. In fact, there were very few film courses nationwide. So there was only the private film schools, and that, yeah, which I could not afford to go to. Mm. Um, tried to get a grant, a bursary, failed. So essentially after failing that, my life plan was mass unemployment and I'd have to do something about it. It luckily tied in with the sale of Alien versus Predator. Me and my brother started to work together on a number of things from uh, you know, Freddy versus Jason, etc., and Judge Dredd, which was a terrific... I mean, that's a life experience alone. It's it, it's mind-blowing how this happened. Talk to me about how this actually happened. How it actually happened? Well, it, it, it's... It's like everything else. You you pitch for the project. Uh, luckily, from Alien vs. Predator, my brother got a fantastic agent, so yes. I kind of tagged along with that. Mm-hmm. But then you get the pitches. You get the offers. Do you want to pitch for this, for X, for Y, for Z? And you go in, you do your pitch, you don't hear anything back, you don't get the job, and you go through this whole process. And then occasionally they pop up and, hey, you've got the job. And you're thinking, how? <laughs> how did I get that one but not the other one? Mm. Uh, and so it, it, it's a numbers game. The more you pitch, the more uh, the, the better you get and the, the better chances you have, essentially. Mm. That's how it happened. And, of course, you've got to have the good ideas to back that up. Of but, course you have. But all your ideas are good ideas. Okay. <laughs> Every single one of them. Every single one. It's just other people think the crap. <laughs> yeah. So he wrote a spec script for Alien versus Predator. How did he get that out? How did he get the agent how did it happen uh, pure luck it was uh essentially it was it was a, such a good script that when he sent her off to william morris they couldn't say no that's, and that was it and then fox a, couldn't say no that's a lesson for everyone isn't it write a good script good enough that they can't say no yeah and it's such, it sounds so easy it sounds but, so but easy it's, it, it's not it's, it's really just, not it, it was uh in that case it was a matter of talent <laughs> yes yeah Okay, so that's a great start for you. I mean, wow. Okay, now you, you, you're working with your brother and you pitch on a few jobs and you get Freddy versus Jason, you get Judge Dredd. Which one came first? Uh, it was Judge Dredd and then Freddy versus Jason. Okay, so... So this was Judge Dredd pre-Stallone. Stallone wasn't even cast in it. This was, I always remember, this was the Judge Death storyline. So for any 2000 AD fans out there, Judge Death is the one everyone wants to see. That's That's the one everybody wants. And I remember at the end of the whole cycle, when, when essentially you get fired or pushed off or shown the door, I remember the classic line was, this is so good, we're going to do this as the sequel. Which kind of summed up Hollywood in my whole mm. mind, because then the first film bombed. And, and there you go. <laughs> yeah, that best line never happened. It exactly. never got that far. Yeah. It's still it's still wonderfully mind-blowing, and there's going to be so many people listening going, right, how do I do that? What, what did you? So you write the pitch for it. Well, to, to achieve all that, I mean, mm. the very the starting blocks to achieve that, you need an agent, you just can't go in blind. So to get an agent, any agent, I mean, my own agent now, any agent, you need to have, uh, as a writer, a damn good writing sample. And where if you want to change it, if you've got one, you want to change agents, they're still going to look at your writing. They're not mm. going to look necessarily at your credits. They're going to say, what's the next script I can take out the door? And they want a script to sell. They don't want a script that's just a good writing sample. They need to sell it. It might be beautifully written, but if you've just written Twilight, 
you know, um, yes. or a variant on Twilight, they can't sell that. Moonlight. You know, so it's useless. <laughs> so um, you've also got to be ahead in the game with where you, what you think the market is looking for, which mm-hmm. is an impossible task. Mm. But essentially, just don't write the last film you've seen. Yes. It's a guessing game, right? I mean, a, it is a guessing game. You never know when zombies are going to come back in fashion or vampires are going to come back in fashion. Yeah. You just don't know. Yeah. So have one ready, right? Always, always useful to have one ready. Mm. Always have a few kind of spurs in the, <laughs> in, in the bank, just in case. Just in case. Yeah. So you get the pitch for, um, Freddy versus Jason, uh, Judge Dredd. Let's go with that one first for Judge Dredd. How do you then go? Um, first of all, you obviously go, Oh my God, how are we going to do this? But then, what, no, not really. Well, actually, yeah, that's, that's interesting. In, in in both cases, it wasn't. Oh my god, how are we going to do this? Mm. It was just a total freak out of joy. Yes, it was because uh, we're fanboys. I mean, in particular, uh, the one that's freshest in my memory is Freddy vs. Jason, uh-huh. which was fantastic because we just got to sort of sit down, watch every film back to back, you know, read everything we could, and and we kind of fanboyed out to try and see how we could connect everything. So there was never a moment of oh my god, how are we going to do this? It was, and what I think all good writing should be, it was actually a passage of joy all the way through, thinking, we love this, this is great. And there wasn't really any point when we were kind of uh, trying to rip it apart or rip each other apart, thinking this is, you know, obviously we think this scene's terrible, we'll rewrite it. But as a project as, as a whole, you've got to have, and I think this is really important, you've got to have a burning enthusiasm mm-hmm. for what you're doing. If you're just doing it for the money, if you're just doing it for the next credit, yes. it's going to be awful. Yes. Uh, you can see some films that make it through and it's like, well, that's, that's written for the money. Yeah. Somebody had a tax bill they needed to pay. Yeah. But if you're passionate, if you're passionate, really so, passionate and the fanboys like you were, yeah, you stepped that up. That really and helped. And, and with both projects, but I mean, particularly with Freddy vs. Jason, it was just so much fun that it was, it was just an effortless process of, uh, of joy, of working together, of having a great time, of really appreciating the material. That is something I've tried to keep through everything I've, I've done subsequently is just don't do a project just because they're waving a paycheck. Mm. Although that's very nice. Uh, but also do it because you genuinely think you can do something fun with it. That's great advice. Really good advice. How do you sit down and do it then? Did you map it out scene by scene first? Talk us through your process. Well, the process, I guess, is something you know, it's personal to each person. So I know some writers who really have to map everything out with cards before they even do a pitch, which I now find quite ridiculous because a pitch has to be something where I'm trying to persuade you as a producer to buy into. Mm. And the best way I can persuade you to buy into my idea is by using your own ideas. So when I pitch, I pitch as thoroughly as I can with uh, some character arcs and just one or two beats, maybe a major scene. But I'll leave deliberately leave enough holes in there. So when you sit back thinking about it, you could say, "Yeah, but you know, could the woman be from uh, you know from Pluto?" And I'll go, "Hey, it's a great idea." And now suddenly mm. it's a little bit harder for you to reject that idea. A little bit harder because part of it's yours, mm. and it's a little bit of a psychological game. But actually, you want to build up a treatment that they love, mm-hmm. but also they're invested in. You're not just giving it to them complete. And I've noticed when I used to give complete, well-thought-out treatments, I'd spent months, well, months probably why I didn't get the job, weeks uh, planning out from A to B with all the arcs, that all the jobs I never got. If I gave a kind of 15-page treatment, I wouldn't get that job. In fact, in fact, it happened this morning. I got so carried away on a project. I delivered this kind of 15-page, well-thought-out treatment because yes. I love the project. I got the email this morning going, ah, we're going to take a different approach. Wow. I know... 
I know if I were to just give them four or five pages with holes everywhere, I'd be on the next call. That's so interesting. You've just got to be invested. I mean, not me as a writer, mm. but if you're my producer or my development guy, I've got to persuade you. He, he's I, got I, need, me. I need to get your brain into the material. Yes, as well. so therefore he wants to pitch it more to his bosses yes. because he's, yeah, he's invested. So a, a development guy once told me, uh, yeah, we were in, uh, I remember uh, sitting in his office on the Disney lot, which is a beautiful lot, and he said, you know, after this, I essentially walk down this corridor to my boss's office and repeat everything you've just said. <laughs> so the more... Uh, the more they can remember, the better, and they're more likely to remember it if some of their ideas are incorporated. Of course. And that sounds like a bit of a hacky thing to do, no, but actually no. that's life. It's it's just the way. Well, it happens in business, right? It happens in everything. All the time. Yeah. All the time. And especially with verbal pitches, you have to remember uh, that half the time they'll embellish it so it's not quite what you've pitched. Mm-hmm. You'll still get the job. And then when you write the treatment, you have to remember, if you've not given them any written material, they won't remember the pitch very well they'll just remember you were cool and yes. they like the pitch so you can actually change the pitch uh, the, the, the written treatment when you more to in. what you want yes yeah. ah and maybe a couple of their one oh yeah always, always try and incorporate i mean because it's a collaborative process if you know if you're you're the rare author who can make it work wonderful for mm-hmm. you i'm not <laughs> it's a collaborative process and you've got to in this stage bring the development people in bring the producer in and say i like that or actually that's not very good, but this is better. How about this? And have a proper conversation. Not not be afraid of saying, I really don't like that. But give them a, another suggestion rather than say, that's crap. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. back it up with, I don't like that, but how about yes. this? And yeah. they'll go, oh. They might see an element of their own, what they were trying to get out of their heads. It's similar to directing in a way. It's the same thing. If an actor comes up with an idea, you mm. go, I like it. But if you did that with this and we... And exactly. Yeah. Because if you're cutting them down all the time, it's... Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's all it. collaborative. I mean, that's, it should that's, be. that's it. I mean, that's the one thing this whole festival we're sitting in at the moment mm-hmm. should be telling everybody is it's a collaborative process. Don't go in there arrogantly going, this is it. This is my... What well, I did. Yeah, this is my 15 pages of perfection because it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, leave enough holes for people to crawl in, fill up with their own thoughts and try and work with them let's jump back slightly to that moment where judge dread is happening Mm -hmm. you've written it now that moment where it goes from you've been involved in that to suddenly it's happening and being filmed that's a long process so in in particular i mean with judge dread and freddie versus jason we were kind of the middle conveyor belt of writers Mm -hmm. so what generally happens you go through various drafts and then yeah the the phone doesn't ring and you're thinking why isn't the phone ringing you find out we've moved in a slightly different direction Uh, but then when you hear it's in production you start to you know your ears start to move like a you know ferret to meerkat and you're Mm -hmm. like i wonder what's going on and then when you see the film you know a lot of it you're thinking that's awful and then you suddenly see your ideas are in there you think that's not as bad as I thought it was. <laughs> so it, it does vary, and particularly in, in the Hollywood conveyor belt. I mean, you know, you've got two people credited for a film, and that's the WGA for you. There's the other 10 who all their ideas are still in there. They yes. just, you know, they're just not on, on screen, on the credits. Yeah. So so that, that can be good, and it can also be disheartening. And the reverse of that is when you do something, I work for the sci-fi channels, when you, you do something and your name's on there and you think, wasn't as good as the script, was oh. it? <laughs> but, you know, it's, again, a collaborative kind of yeah. process. You, you go roll with the punches, whether you're on screen or whether they've just taken whole elements 
and then somebody else gets the kudos for them. You go, okay, you've just got to roll with the punches. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the best way to look at it. Otherwise, you'd be always disappointed. And you don't seem that way. You seem very sort of it, everything's good. It's like well, you've also got to remember that that you know if if your name's not flashing on the screen, it's you know the, the somebody else who's the A lister who's mm. polished everything off. You, you've just got to remember everyone else in that process knew exactly what you've done. And you'll go back there a couple of years later and you'll still meet them and go, yeah, of course we worked, let's do something else. So it's a, it's a relationship business. It's not a credit business. Mm-hmm. So when uh, Stallone was saying some of your lines and, and those scenes were happening, what, how did that fit? Was that a really nice moment? To, to be honest, it's usually a blur and you can't remember. I remember, again, in Freddy vs. Jason, there was, there was a whole kind of sequence which we'd, we'd done. And I didn't remember doing it. It wasn't until really? I watched it again, watched it on the cinema, I thought, mm. and then when I watched it on DVD, I, I thought, hold on, <laughs> hold on a moment, went back to read the script. So, because you work on so many other projects as mm. well, that it all becomes a blur. Yes. Um, Some of your DNA is in there for sure. Oh yeah, your DNA is in there and you know, you know, and you can go back and read what you've done and that's uh-huh. absolutely fine. But because I'm kind of, the projects I'm working on now, some will happen next year, some won't happen at all, some will happen in five years' time. So I'm already that far ahead in my thinking. So what I did at the start of this year is a blur. <laughs> Never mind now. Yeah. <laughs> so you went from writing this to then you're writing your own stuff at the same time. Were you then pitching to the same studios, the same execs with the projects you were writing on your own? Well, what kind of happened there is my brother's directing that's what he's going to be doing Mm. and he really wants to focus on that and that was fantastic and i just enjoyed the whole writing side of things so uh i just got a different agent different representation uh so there was no kind of uh you know feeling of any kind of clash so i could go off with a kind of fresh slate that was just a case of setting up meetings talking about different genres of writing so with freddie versus jason obviously it's kind of it's a horror Mm. How did you find doing that? Because with The Dare, it was a horror film, and me and Johnny Grant wrote that. It's more psychological horror. How we, did you find it? What's your um, take? I, that's interesting, because I, I, I grew up watching every type of films. I'd watch The Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. sing along to it, and then I'd watch like a whole bunch of films. Do you go to these sing-along events down at the uh, Prince not, Charles? No, I'd probably be banned. <laughs> the the moment loud. I open up my lungs, they'll be, hey, you get out of here. Laurel and Hardy comedy, and then you know The Wizard of Oz, and then a Hammer horror film. and So it was a big, varied mess of film education for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I know some people just love horror, some people will only go to Fright Fest, and they won't go to anything else, and that's, that's cool, that's fine. But I was kind of right across the range. Did that hinder you in any way, do you think? Y- yes and no. Okay. I, I, that's a very good question because when you get representation, when you get um, managers or agents, they ideally want you in a little box so they can pull like Giles off the show. Oh, he's the horror writer. Mm-hmm. They won't put you up for anything else. You're just the horror writer and it makes them, it makes it easier for them to sell you. Sure. I remember my, one of my managers in the States complaining saying, it's really difficult to sell you. Because I was writing a horror movie and then I'd give them a spec script, which is an action comedy. And they're like, and truthfully, that kind of probably slowed me down quite a lot. But that was on the manager's front because uh, they're not, I want lazy is the wrong word, but. Well, they're pigeonhole people. Yeah, the pigeonhole. It's easier for them to do to say, oh, it's the the guy here who wrote Freddy vs. Jason. That's easy. If if suddenly you come up with the next Philadelphia. Yeah. They're going, well. Exactly. That can't be any good. Yeah. So that's that that that's a problem. So I mean, ideally, you want to kind of be the the one note writer that everybody can sell, but then it'll hinder your career. Yes. So whereas it took me longer, I guess, 
uh, to get more footholds, mm. I got more varied footholds. So I can work on uh, everything from Freddy vs. Jason, which is a horror, or then a superhero film, and then a, a comedy. So I, I, I kind of, I've got more range people will look at because of that. So in the long run, even though it might be difficult at first, you're if you're a writer who doesn't just want to do one genre, you're suggesting do write what you want. And yeah. in the long run, if your writing is good enough, you will get yeah. that. Yes, as long as you're yeah. aware, your representation will want to pigeonhole you. Yes. Which, again, is just the nature of the business. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of booked against that quite a lot. Okay. Uh, so I'd go, I mean, I had a, a spec script go out, which everyone loved. Nobody bought, but everyone loved it. And it got me so much work. And all the work it got me was because it generated meetings. And I went in, and then I'd pitch from this horror film. I'd pitch for an action film or something else. And suddenly they're like, oh, yeah, we like that idea. We just mm-hmm. like your writing. And it didn't become about we like the genre you write in. Yes. We just like your writing. That sounds great, doesn't it? When that, it must have been a nice it, moment when that happened. It just clicked. It's like, oh, yeah, good. It, 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 it was fun, but mm. it was difficult as well. I remember um, we did, you know, Freddy vs. Jason. The next thing we worked on was Forever Man, which is a superhero thing with Stan Lee, and that mm. was kind of geek out time. Did you meet Stan? Did yeah, you? well, oh, we, he was right. our main point of contact. So wow. he's remained a friend to us both as well. He's a lovely guy. Then from the back of that, when I you know started to say, well, I'm going to write this, you're directing this, that's cool. The very first thing I got was Aquaman, but it was the animated Aquaman, mm-hmm. which ultimately got shelved. Right. But that was such a fantastic project. Now, I didn't get that because of the Stan Lee thing. I just got that from an actual horror spec. Wow. <laughs> it might have helped that. You know, yes. Yeah. Um, but that different universe as yeah, well, okay. DC, Marvel. But um, it was from the horror spec, and they liked the writing, went in, did a pitch, got the job, sat there open mouth. Wow. That was a particularly funny time because uh, it was when Entourage was on, season one or two, I can't remember, and, and, and they were Aquaman. making Aquaman. Mm. I remember getting the call saying, you from my manager going, you've got Aquaman. I was in LA, and I rang my friends here in London and said, I'm doing Aquaman. They'd just watched Entourage, so yes. they're like, you're full of shit, Briggs, and hung up the phone. I'm like, <laughs> celebrating on my own. <laughs> yeah. I saw in Empire Magazine that, oh, yes, no, they are doing Aquaman, yeah. which would have been your one. I was like, this doesn't, this isn't real. Yeah. Are they doing it on the back of Entourage? I'm trying to be the guy in the middle of that. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm receiving a paycheck for something. Something. <laughs> I have to write something about yeah. a swimming man fish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how, the process of that, then writing that, what was... Did you go back into the comics and, and really work with that? Yeah, I mean, um, anyone out there who's familiar with the Marvel versus DC war will uh, know pretty quickly that Marvel have a coherent history of their characters. What DC did, every decade they'd reboot the character and in some cases completely change the name of the character, which they did with both the Flash and Aquaman. Mm. So we had to go in with the producers and, everything and decide which Aquaman we wanted to do and which variant we wanted to do. And to be honest, I can't remember where we went with it. Right. Uh, I just remember uh, um, Black Manta was in there as the bad guy and it was a lot of fun. But that, again, because it was an established property like Dread, like uh, Freddy vs. Jason, it, it involved lots of research if you class researchers sitting around drinking beer and reading comics, which, which is fantastic. Yeah. 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 It's almost like being a kid, but yet drinking beer. Yeah. Unless you did that in Liverpool as a kid. Of course. Of course. <laughs> so it's exactly the same it's, thing. It's exactly the same without the hard drugs. <laughs> um, let's, let's move on a little bit because there's so much I could talk to you about. Well, let's, first of all, let's talk about Legendary. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott Atkins starring. I really like Scott Atkins. I think he's great. Not just an action star. I think he's a great actor. I think he's really good. Mm. This was directed by Eric Stiles. Yes. Um, talk to me about this. You, you wrote, this was from your idea. So, uh, yeah, so Le- Legendary is one of those uh, projects which just had 
a multiple life of its own. So essentially, it's a movie about cryptozoology, the scientific study and search for creatures that don't exist, but they might. And every year, uh, there's about 16,000 new creatures genuinely found from bugs to insects, but they also find primates as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole range of, of creatures, and there's a whole lot uh, out there to still discover, which I, I find fascinating. I think it's fascinating, yeah. Wonderful. So I, I came up, I was actually in the middle of the Venezuelan jungle, oh, yeah. going to Angel Falls, talking to the locals, and they're talking about things they've seen, which we couldn't match the in description, our, in yeah. Our description what, what are they? And we thought this. I thought this is pretty cool, but that's yeah. I've been to lots of jungles, and mm-hmm. every culture's got exactly that. So anyway, so I came up with this, and I was doing a whole bunch of sci-fi things, and I, I said uh, I was originally developing it as a sci-fi as a backdoor pilot was the original idea, and then I met. Uh, well, I knew the producer Chris Milburn, but we'd been out of touch for a little bit, and we met up, and I said, "Hey, I've got this idea," and he went, "I love it." So Chris and I developed it uh, into mm-hmm. a movie. And we got sci-fi on board. Uh, we got a whole bunch of money in. And literally, I was I was you know, at home in pajamas calling friends in various companies and, you know, managed to get a whole bunch of money together. Yeah. And I realized I've just exec produced a movie in my pajamas. This is fantastic. Um, and we went through a whole bunch of processes where we were filming it uh, originally in Romania. Then we were filming it in Iowa. And in Iowa, the, the story that was related to me was our producer went in to sign the tax credit deal. Mm-hmm. He went back to his hotel room, turned on the TV to see a live broadcast of the feds raiding the building he's oh just been gosh. in and arresting the guy for fraud. Wow. So our film was then caught up in this legal mess. And I, I remember Googling it and seeing newspapers in Iowa saying British film being given a massive payout for not filming in Iowa. Wow. Uh, that's because the legal settlement after several years, the producers managed to get some money back out. Um, and then China happened and everybody was starting to wake up to China but we was we still are the best recouping uh, independent British film. Wow, um, that's great! To, to actually, you know, made our money back. You know, mm-hmm. we were number five at the box office, which, considering below us at number six was Olympus Has Fallen, <laughs> and below them was Mortal Instruments. Mm-hmm. Everything above us was Chinese. So we did really well. Then we had that whole experience of shooting it in China. Mm-hmm. How was we that? Had, that must have been... It was interesting. It was all very new, and we had to go through the SAFT process, which is the official government... Uh, granting of what you can and cannot have. And mm-hmm. um, we actually sailed through. We had to make a few tiny changes, but nothing major. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting, and it's just as easy and hard as filming in Wales okay. or Scotland. I mean, it's got its different problems. Mm-hmm. But we got this this film, right? And it was it was also shot in three D, which we I, I was kind of really against, but it was shot in three D. See, I'm a big fan of three D. I love three D, but not for my film. Right? <laughs> Did you not write it for three D? No. Right. So they decided to change it. Well, the di- that was the director then. The director okay. just had lots of you know pointy sticks and things. So, <laughs> <laughs> but but essentially, I just thought it was too much for for the, for the budget of the film as well. It's just a little bit. Why are we doing this? But China love three D. So. Um, yeah, it did, did all right. Yeah, I'm not complaining. Yeah. yeah. But it was, a, it was a great experience. And then we got Scott and we got Dolph. Uh, you know, Dolph Lundgren. Fantastic. I mean, Dolph Lundgren is such a wonderful guy. He's and, a really wonderful guy. I've yeah. heard he's wonderful in yeah. real life. Yeah. Is he wonderful? I mean, he's a gentleman. I mean, I remember saying, I remember the call saying, yeah, we got Dolph Lundgren. And I'm thinking, hang on, Dolph Lundgren, he's supposed to be a scientist. It's Dolph. It's like, and then reading up that, he's got this kind of chemical engineering certificate from Caltech. And the guy's <laughs> incredibly smart. And you suddenly realize... 
hell. He's, he is a nice guy. Mm. So that was just a, a wonderful kind of you know, process. It was just a fun thing to do. And how did you find writing it? I mean, in terms of there's quite a bit of action in there. How do you find writing that side as well? <laughs> Not to look at me, but I'm a bit of an action junkie in the sense I, you know, I go through jungles around the world. I love all that side of things. Mm-hmm. You know, go snorkeling, scuba diving, love all that. And I'd been in the jungle, so I knew what the characters were facing okay in a way mm. <laughs> so it was very easy for me to write right do, do you find generally writing is easy for you does it do, do you get writers blocked oh, you have no I don't, I don't get writers but i find it very easy however most of it is crap so you've got to really think when you're on a roll, this is so good. Mm-hmm. Now, it's probably like, you know, 80, 90% crap. And then you've got to rewrite or throw away or jettison. But I don't hit writer's block because I've developed, I guess, in my own mind, a technique where I can't work on one project. I've got five or six projects on the go. And the moment I can feel the creeping loom of writer's block approaching, I will just naturally kind of run out of enthusiasm and just jump onto the next project Got you. right that that'll happen next one i'm on project three and by the time it happens again i'll go back to project one and your mind will just solve those problems for you and it'll suddenly be fresh again and you don't hit writer's block so i kind of slow down a little bit yes and then hop across projects but it, it, it that way i get you know four or five projects done in the space of just sitting down for one I do staring the, at the screen I do the same yeah. I find it it just makes sense to just because there's nothing worse than getting stuck on a scene yeah and in fact sometimes I'll just plow through it yeah I'll just go do you know what this is dreadful but I'm just going to write to yeah, the end absolutely and I mean even, even if I big action scene yeah. something blows up and then move on move to the on. next scene which is the one you actually wanted to write yes you, you can always go back you but can go back sitting there banging your head against mm. the table is so counterproductive and so depressing that you shouldn't do it I mean the moment you've got writer's block stop and write something completely different. Stop your vampire love story. Mm-hmm. Go away and write a cowboy action comedy. Yep. And it will really give you a, a mental freedom. That's great. That's great advice. Really nice. Um, all right, let's talk about Crowhurst. I wrote it. I was like, hell, yeah, I want yeah, to do this. It's fantastic. And again, I would never have got this previously because it's not a horror film. It's a, it's a true story. It's a psychological story. It's a thrill in some aspects. But, you know, it's not a horror movie, so why the hell would I get this? But I'd worked with the producers before, and I'd done a variety of different genres, so he trusted me with it. And we went out, and it was great. We we had a huge budget, we were ready to go, and the original director kind of dropped out. Uh, He was going to be a... It was an A-list star who was going to direct. And that was a bit unfortunate. At that point, the uh, Colin Firth project which is called the mercy exactly the same story you wait around for 50 years 50th anniversary next year uh-huh. no films about it and there's going to be two uh colin firth once suddenly got pushed forward with james marsh colin firth so right. of course we were blown out the water but we still had some of the investment so we badgered me and the producer badgered the uh, the finance guys and they went well if you can do it for a lower budget much lower budget Let's do it. Now, Simon Rumley had already been involved from the higher budget right through. And Simon, as a director. Or, as a director. Yeah. And he knew that there was, there was a bigger fish waiting to put, you know, Simon passionately wanted to do. And Simon's just got such a great quirky eye. He's 
you know, unbelievable what he, he can pull off. And we said, obviously, you know, Simon can do this in his sleep. You know, he likes the script. What, what, what are we waiting for? Mm-hmm. So we actually shot the thing. We went off, we shot it. We, we traded the, uh, you know, the, the water tanks in Malta for the port of Bristol. Um, and we actually wrapped on the other project's first day of principal photography. And I remember being sent a local newspaper with a blurry kind of Bigfoot-type picture of uh, our Crowhurst just in Salinger on top of the mast. And the headline was, Colin Firth in Bristol. And we're thinking, no, he's not. Um, so anyway, so that's the whole story. So yeah, with a little underdog picture to the mighty one. Yeah, so that's that's uh, it's going to be out next year. Studio Canal are going to distribute it here, and they're also doing the Mercy as well, which is the Colin Firth one. And because they're having their own little battle. Their little well, they can have battle. their own little battle, but we were always the underdog anyway. But that was such a, a lovely story to write. So yeah, we're happy with it. It's great, and it was um, it was just a joyous story to sort of get involved with as well. Even though it's got the, it's a very dark story, but it's a joyous kind of, you know, British bulldog kind of spirit mm-hmm. mentality. Great. Let's talk about Supervised. The next film that will be after that one, right? It'll be coming out next summer. Uh, should be. Who, who knows with, with, with schedules? Steve Barron, Mike Bassett, English manager, but more importantly, Teenage Ninja Mutant Turtles for of course. Jim Henson. I mean, more, mm-hmm. and Steve is just, again, one of those lovely directors. I mean, he directed the famous AHA video with the animated rotoscoped hand. And, and wow. I, yeah, I didn't know that. I, utter geek boy. So, yeah, I'm in awe of Steve. He's just fantastic. Again, the, the premise of this, supervised, is it's a retirement home for ex-superheroes. So it's Grumpy Old Men, Marigold, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, meets the Avengers. And it's done in a way that you think maybe these guys are slightly senile. It'd be like, hey, I can still do this. And they'd point to a water bottle. Nothing would happen. Then halfway <laughs> through the scene, it'd inch across the table. And they become convinced that they need to go out on one last jolly. I'm not going to tell you too much more about that. And it was, again, such a different thing to write because this is, uh, you've, you've heard the kind of grey pound term. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's for the older viewers and incredibly difficult to cast because uh, they wanted kind of 70-year-old plus. So we managed to get Tom Berenger, Amazing. Bob Bridges, Luke mm-hmm. Gossett Jr., uh, Fenella Flanagan. Mm-hmm. And so we've got this wonderful cast. You've, also, you've also got uh, Fiona Glasgow. Fiona Gla- yeah, from, from, yeah from, but she's the young one. Yes, that's that's young why one. I wasn't included yeah. in seven. She's the young, beautiful Yeah, uh, And girl. she's in A Serial Killer's Guide to Life. Is she? Yes. There you go. There I didn't go. know that. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a nice little connection. Wonderful yeah. connection. Mm. Brilliant. So yeah, and, and 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 of course she she she's the pretty young one compared mm-hmm. to all these seventy year olds. It's just such a fun story. I thought it'd never actually get made because it's just out there a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that we've wrapped on it. It'll be at AFM, and then we'll see where it goes from there. But just to get that uh, kind of call going, yeah, Tom Berenge is doing this. It's kind of. My little geek boy from Liverpool was like, "Oh my god, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is such good fun!" It's great. It's great. It's, um, and how was the process on writing that? Did you get sent the idea? Did you? What happened? Well, I, the producer actually had an old photograph of a uh, photograph, an old painting, <laughs> photograph of Captain America and Superman. That <laughs> no, was a painting, a cartoon panel of these guys as old guys playing poker. He said, "I want to do that as a film." So that was the starting point. And then yeah. this whole idea, yeah, retirement home for superheroes could be really good fun. In this kind of, it's set now, we've kind of forgotten all the heroics in the past and mm-hmm. the world has moved on. It just became a very kind of poignant story about, you know, the way life used to be and, you know, you want to go out. The older you get, you want that one last chance to mm-hmm. show what you're made of. I mean, the original, one of the original drafts was bigger and brasher and too expensive. And then we just batted around the idea and molded it more to find the heart of the story as opposed to the, the overall 
you know, Avengers, we can blow everything up. Mm-hmm. We wanted the heart, which was just about these guys wanting one last act of redemption before it's too late. That made it a much better story. Do you find it easier to write characters like that? They're a little bit more, they're not as skilled, they're older. Most of my characters, and I've found this across everything I've done from, from the books, comics, right through to films, is I seem to favor underdogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's probably that's probably... You know, some kind of weird psychological problem I've got there. I'm trying to reflect myself on screen. But it's always kind of the person, uh, you know, the character who, who has to have the scrappy fight to achieve something. I always find them more interesting characters. And even when I've been given stories to do where the character's starting up at the top and then they, I try and get them down as fast as possible because being at the top is just not interesting. It's mm-hmm. that climb up that's the fun of any story, I think. Yeah. Have you, have you ever had a problem where you've, you've actually really struggled to write it? You've sort of gone, do you know what? Um, it's not for me. Has that happened? or is you- Yeah, I mean, there's some, some stories that have said, do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? Mm-hmm. And I've looked at and I've either known straight away that yeah, I don't really want to do that. Uh, or yeah, I've tried to give it a go. And I, I know that my kind of enthusiasm's not really been there and it shows. Mm-hmm. So sometimes then you get told, yeah, well, we'll look elsewhere and you think, thank God. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's a relationship business. So you want to tell somebody, look, you know, I can't quite do X, I'll do Y, but you're not looking for Y. And they'll go, okay. They'll probably come back to you and go, we've got a Y project now. Great. And okay. it's, it's again about your enthusiasm. Uh, I, I've worked repeatedly with a lot of um, producers rather than new producers every time. And you can sometimes, I've got writer friends who are fantastic, but they go, yeah, I'm not working with that producer again. And you think, oh, God, mm. you just know something has happened. Yes. Don't ask questions. Don't want to know. Okay. Um, everyone's got a bad story about somebody, but I don't really want to hear it anymore. I've done all that. Yeah. I um, I mean. And so I get a lot of repeat business, I guess. From, yeah. from the you same seem people. to have a good relationship with your producers you work with. And like you say, the repeat business, I try to go out. I mean, there's another thing when, you know, producers used up all their allocated drafts mm-hmm. and then my agent knows he's going to get the call or email from me going, I'm going to do a few more for, for free. And he's like, no, what are you doing? Um, But essentially, we know there's going to be a few more tweaks that producers can't afford. So it's what? They're going to get somebody else, but they're they're going to struggle because they've got no money. Mm. Or I'll just do it and we'll get the film made. So I kind of favor that attitude where, look, we're doing this as a team. You've paid up. We've done, you know, three drafts, six polishes, whatever it's going to be. You need two more. We know this, and we'll just keep on chipping and chipping and chipping. And then the budget comes in, and you realize, oh, God, we've got to chip away even more. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got that more relaxed attitude, if you're looking at the, the counter like, like a taxi, thinking, no, oh, this is rolling over, then people don't like to work with you. If you just go back and say, okay, I'll do a few more. I want this to be made as, just as much as you do. That's a different. That's a whole different relationship and a different ball game. Do you find sometimes that agents can potentially get in the way of that and push back rather than the writer doing it? No, not not my representation. I've got manager and states and agent here and they're fantastic mm. and they kind of know how I work. With other clients, they might be a little bit more hardball, be but because mm. they know the way I work, they're kind of fine with that because they know I'm not going to come back and bitch to them about something because it's all my fault. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> no, I've no I, I may, maybe a little bit of resistance early on, but not nothing terrible. Okay. Has there been a point where you just you've, you've got an amazing project, you've written it, it's your idea, and you, you've got to that point, and you really want to make it, and you've given it to your producers, and they're sort of gone, the people you know, and they've gone, no, 
it's not for us, it's not for us. Um, has that happened for All you? All the time. All yeah. the time. I mean, come on. What? That's that's 95% of the business. So uh, anyone who says they've never had that and never had rejection, they're lying because they want to make them look good. Okay. Anyone who says this is my debut novel is lying because they've written a whole bunch of other things they couldn't sell. Right. It, it's the debut one that came out. It's the debut one that came out, but yes. it's so it's better, better for me to say this is the first thing I've ever written rather than the 10th thing I couldn't sell. Sure. Which one's the better sell? So. Yes. Um, it happens all the time to everybody. Uh, I mean, I, I, I remember, again, I'm not going to say who, but I, I've been asked to rewrite some... A, I'm not A-list, but I've been asked to rewrite A-list writers on some things. And I've looked at... I forget how... I love these films they've done. Mm. And I'm reading this piece of shit they've written. And I'm wondering how this can't be the same person. Do you think that, that sometimes they just did it for a paid gig or whatever and just wrote it and just went, yeah, whatever. Particularly two, two people I have in mind don't really need the paid gig. So right. it really beggars belief why the drafts were so bad. However, mm-hmm. it happens to everyone. And that's the reassuring part. It doesn't matter who you are. You're going to write Laura Duff's and they'll never get anywhere. But it's, so you think it's, let's say you think this project's really good. You've written it, you're, and everyone's saying no. But you know there's life in there. You know this could be amazing. What do you do? Do you keep going? Do you rewrite? Do you change things? Or do you let things go? I, I, oh, I let things go. Because, oh, again, okay. I've got friends who, who get hang script, on to stuff. Hang yeah. on, rewrite, 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 rewrite. And it's awful. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to say to them, look, you, you've just spent two years of your life rewriting something that nobody wanted two years ago, and it's in a worse shape than it was. And yeah. then you've not got that friend anymore. Uh, so that's problematic. So I just let go. Well, one, one interesting project, I guess, or interesting from my point of view, mm-hmm. I had sold it several times. And we'd had two different really good directors on, uh, one of which was uh, Toby Hooper, mm. who passed away recently. Yeah. Great, we were ready to go. There was finance. And then it always came to the director going, well, I just want to change one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. And it suddenly wasn't the film that the director liked in the first place. The producers didn't like in the first place. Mm. And the financiers didn't, you know, they, they liked the project original. A. Yes. And we could tweak it up to E, and that's fine. But we're on Z now. The director's gone, let's set her in space. And it's, you know, an underground epic or something. And I got the rights back repeatedly. So in this particular one, everybody, I mean, I mean, as a sample, it's got me so much work, and everyone really likes it. So I went back to it, tweaked it a bit, and I'm setting her up the long, long Sandy process as my directorial debut. Wow. But I'm not going to let that one go. Okay. I might have to when I don't get it made, but you know, I'm now I'm not going to submit it. Uh, I know I've sold it twice and got it back. I know I could sell it again yes, if if I yeah. suddenly needed to, you know, pay yeah. for something, but I don't want to. And everyone I've have had producers ask for the script. It's like, yeah, I want to direct and like no first time directors go away. There's the door. So it depends. And I've got other projects that are just sitting on the hard drive, biding the time and, or they'll just die or I'll just go in and steal the scene and And put it in another thing. And sometimes rewriting and rewriting can ruin something. Like you've just said, sometimes you can overkill it. There there is a certain extent Mm. to, to, you know, there's only so much plastic surgery you can have before you start looking like a freak. So, it applies to scripts. You can only do so much rewriting before it's a different animal. And generally that animal is a piece of shit uh-huh. because you've written all the good things out. You've over explained or you've tried to be a bleak. And mm. so you've got to have, you've got to find your own cutoff point when that project is dead. And no matter how much you love it, it's nobody else cares. And it'll never, you know, you can't have a passion project that the rest of the world's not interested in. 
directing. So this is something you've wanted to do for a while. I'm a writer, of course. Of course. You've like, I want to direct myself. Don't be stupid. Because there must be nothing worse than when the directors come in Show and me a ruined. writer anywhere in the world who doesn't want to direct. Yeah. I have been told uh, by numerous producers that I write in a very visual style. Mm. And in a weird way, because of my style, it's as if I was producing verbal you know verbal storyboards or you know what i mean yeah, yeah. It's, they, they can actually see it a little bit clearer you never put camera moves in your scripts oh, occasionally. occasionally all okay. these rules are all bollocks all of them you know don't right. put camera moves in those no, i want to start the scene with a close-up i don't care what the director wants mm. it starts with a close-up okay i'll pour it in there well because it's hard not to write closer otherwise you're just writing a man's eyes yeah. or a hand comes like, in. all of that is rubbish never write the inner thoughts of a character it's mm. like well the actor needs to know Needs something. To know something. Yeah. So all these rules are all bullshit. Cool. You, you, you're like, do you know what? Oh, they're all real. The three act structure. I mean, come on. I, yeah. My personal opinion is, you know, it's Sid Field wrote that book and then killed the screenwriting business. Right. Uh, or, or rather the storytelling, <laughs> storytelling business. Yeah. Yes. Screenwriting business went boffo. and yeah. sold lots of, uh, lots of books. But it's all rubbish. Mm. I mean, it is all rubbish because yeah. they're all based on other scripts where they haven't sat down and gone, this is my midpoint. Of course, no, they yeah. haven't done that. I know. And it's if just you do that, it, a gut instinct. Exactly. And it becomes really formulaic. You're like, this is the point this should happen. Whereas actually, if you just write yeah. something that's interesting, you can tweak I'm it a, a bit. I'm a huge but... Lethal Weapon fan. I remember watching mm. Lethal Weapon 4 yeah. and it was written so to the second. I remember looking at my watch going, oh God, we're reaching there the midpoint we in two minutes and then bing and thinking, that's it. This, the, the, that story structure has killed the business. Right. So I don't, I don't kind of believe in any of any okay. of that stuff. It's rubbish. If I, like I say, if I want a wide shot, I'm going to write a wide shot, and it's it's actually kind of integral to the, the way you're going to tell the story. If if you want to show this lone figure in a desert, don't just put lone figure. It doesn't spring off the page. You know, you've got to say ultra wide, or you you've got to use those terms and and use that direction because fine, the director can change it on the day. Who cares? The director's not directing your script. He's directing a shooting script further down. Your script has yes, to sell. That's true. It has to paint the image in everyone who's financing it, who wants to star in it, who you have to paint the image for the director to come aboard. Yeah, great advice. I think I, I'm, I'm the same. I feel sometimes you get boxed in with structure, mm. whereas actually it can be totally free. You yeah. Do write what you want and then come back and Absolutely. tweak if you need. Yeah. Great. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love you to have that that conversation with Quentin Tarantino. He'd probably slap you around the face and go, "Structure, structures for losers." He can, but, but he's got a very good point in I, that case. Yeah, <laughs> listen, this has been an absolute pleasure. This has been a real joy. Thank you so much for so much knowledge and information and all your worldly. Worldly, worldly. Wow. <laughs> I um, stroke my big grey beard when you say that. I was that, trying so to find a <laughs> adjective. Um, Crap. Yeah, <laughs> my worldly crap that I've imparted to you and your listeners, and your all your worldly joy <laughs> you've given us. Uh, thank you so much. Um, where can we follow you? I'm at a Briggs writer because there's some other Andy Briggs posting as me out there on Twitter. My website andybriggs.co.uk. You can just jump on there and everything, Twitter and everything. And you do blogs as well, and there's all sorts. Yeah, of Yeah, well, all my blogs are on there. Your well, books. I kind of mainly yeah. then sort of tweets lots, re- yeah. relentlessly tweet things. So perfect. So do follow me. him and and do. Tweet him. Um, oh, yeah, he ask might me, tweet yeah, you back. Ask me anything. Why not? Yeah, why not? Why not? You can follow us at Filmmakers Pod. You can follow me at Giles Alderson, and you can follow the Dare at the Dare Movie. Do go onto iTunes. Do give us a little review uh, and a five star rating, whatever rating you want. But five stars is a good, it's a good rating to have. Um, thank you very much, Andy. This has been brilliant. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Bye.